Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for March 25th to 31st. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Catherine Millar on the pioneering career of the American Psychological Association's first woman president, Mary Whitten Hawkins. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For March 25th. In 1900, Ruth W. Howard Beckham was born. Beckham was the first African American woman to earn the PhD in psychology, awarded to her at the University of Minnesota in 1934. Her research and consulting focused on the areas of mental retardation, child development, and family counseling. For March 26th, in 1954, the antipsychotic drug chlorpromazine hydrochloride, better known by its trade name Thorazine, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It was the first of the phenothiazines put into general use and became widely, even worryingly, used in institutional settings. For March 29th, in 1887, George Trumbull Ladd's textbook, Elements of Physiological Psychology, was published. It was one of the first American textbooks to include substantial coverage of the new experimental psychology. Ladd was also the American Psychological Association's second president in 1893. Also, on March 29th in 1948, lithium was first used in a trial treatment of manic behavior. Australian John F. J. Cade gave lithium citrate to what he called a little wizened man of 51 who had been in a chronic state of excitement for five years. The treatment was surprisingly effective and the patient was soon discharged. For March 30th, in 1896, the first published article appeared in which Sigmund Freud used the term psychoanalysis. The paper was published in French. Also on March 30th, in 1908, Freud had his only conversation with little Hans. Hans's phobic reactions to horses led Freud to his theory of infantile sexuality and dreams as wish fulfillment. For March 31st, in 1881, Sigmund Freud received his MD from the University of Vienna. His dissertation topic was the reproductive system of eels. And also on March 31st, in 1902, the first annual meeting of the American Philosophical Association began at Columbia University. James E. Creighton of Cornell University was elected president. Of the 98 charter members of the American Philosophical Association, 62 were also members of the American Psychological Association. And finally, also on March 31st in 1960, Milton Rokich's book, The Opened and Closed Mind, was published. 22 co-authors assisted in producing this classic of political psychology. March 30th, 1863, was the birth date of Mary Whitten Hawkins. 
Hawkins founded the first experimental psychology laboratory in a woman's college, Wellesley College, and although refused the PhD she had earned at Harvard University, went on to become not only the first woman president of the American Psychological Association in 1905, but also the first woman president of the American Philosophical Association in 1918. Hawkins invented the paired associates procedure for investigating memory and developed one of the earliest personality theories that focused on the nature of the self. On the line to talk to us about the pioneering career of Mary Whitten Hawkins is Dr. Catherine Millar of Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Professor Millar is the author of, among other things, The First Generation of Women Psychologists and the Psychology of Women, published in American Psychologist in the year 2000. Professor Millar, Hawkins was quite a pioneer being one of the earliest women psychologists and philosophers in America. Um, could you tell us a bit about her background? Was she raised by exceptional parents or did she have exceptional teachers? I think she really did have exceptional parents. Her father, Wolcott Calkins, was a congregational minister. Um, he had attended congregational seminary and then um, actually was pastor of a Presbyterian church, and she grew up in Buffalo, New York. But then they moved to Newton, Massachusetts in 1881, and that's where she lived the rest of her life. She, Her mother, Charlotte, was evidently interested in a number of social causes and so forth, but was not a strong. Um, she was not in really good health for much of her life. Um, Calkins was the oldest of five children, and the story is that her parents had very progressive ideas about education, and they actually spoke nothing but German from the time that she was born for the first few years of her life to make sure that she would grow up fluent in another language. They um, pursued educational opportunities for the children, and then they would um, take them all off to Europe and uh, have them live with families and immerse themselves in language. So all of the children grew up fluent in French and German as well as English. She, uh, Mary had one younger sister and three younger brothers. She, was eventually, she eventually went to uh, Smith College where she earned her BA, and she was hired to teach Greek at Wellesley in 1886. But in 1890, she was granted a leave to study psychology at Harvard, and there she worked with William James and Josiah Royce, as well as Edmund Sanford at Clark. What was that like? This, I think this is the best story um, of uh, how Hawkins came to study with James at Harvard. She had been traveling in Europe with her family and uh, after she graduated from Smith, and she had studied the classics at Smith. And so then she traveled in Greece for a while and did more study of the classics and learned modern Greek. And when she came back to the States, she had actually planned to do some private tutoring in Greek. But her father met Alice Freeman, who was then president of Wellesley, and managed to get Mary hired to teach Greek at Wellesley. This, there's a story that Mary went to visit one of the, her colleagues in the philosophy department and was looking at the books on the shelf in the office and commented on how much she had loved philosophy at Smith. And they were, they were at that time, they were beginning to, um, they were deciding that they needed to start offering this new psychology um, at Wellesley because it wasn't being offered and, and departments were beginning to have psychology as part of the philosophy department. So Wellesley at that time, had the philosophy that, well, we'll get a good person and then we'll get the training for that person later. So they asked Hawkins if she'd like to start teaching this new psychology. 
And she said yes, as long as she could get some training in it. And they eventually agreed that she would spend a year trying to get training in psychology and then start teaching it at Wellesley. So Calkins started looking around um, for where she might be able to study. And, of course, this was a dilemma at the time because women were not accepted most places for graduate work. Um, and Calkins very much wanted a laboratory-based psychology and there were only two labs, laboratories, in New England at that time, one at Harvard and one at Clark. So she decided to apply to, to Harvard to see if she could study um, with William James. And James was delighted with, at the idea, but um, when he mentioned it to Charles Elliott, who was the president of Harvard at that time, Elliott said no. Um, and there's various correspondence with James and Calkins where James is not happy with Elliot but is kind of making excuses for him and pointing out he'd gotten in trouble with the Harvard board for winking at women in a previous circumstance. So uh, eventually Mary Calkins' father steps in again and Mary Calkins' brothers had graduated from Harvard and so Walcott Calkins wrote a letter to the president of Harvard petitioning for Calkins to be allowed to study with William James and Josiah Royce. And he makes the argument that no embarrassing precedents of coeducation were going to be set, but that uh, this was simply the application of a faculty member from another institution to an institution in the same city asking for this courtesy. Um, and it was backed up by a, a letter from the president of Wellesley. And this petition was successful, and Calkins was accepted to study with James. He had just published his huge Principles of Psychology in two volumes, and there were four people registered for this seminar with him, and everyone else dropped out. Um, we don't know whether that was because Mary Calkins was going to be in the seminar or if they just made other plans, but so Calkins ended up sitting either side of the fire, the way she put it, with James reading his brand new book, um, which was certainly a wonderful way to, to get introduced to psychology. Wow, so she got a personal tutorial in Principles of Psychology with the author. With the author, right, yeah, yeah, just she and James on either side of the library fire, the way she talks about it, it, just, it sounds just wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and then she also, uh, again, James was not a big laboratory guy. Uh, he didn't like the laboratory very much. And so she did um, undertake some private tutoring with Edmund Sanford at Clark University. And he was actually very helpful to her and helped her uh, put together the equipment and, um, and in some cases helped her design equipment for the laboratory that she established at Wellesley the following year. Um, which became the first psychological laboratory at women's college. Mm -hmm. So she goes back to Wellesley and founds this lab, but just uh, a couple years later in 1892, she returned to Harvard for further study and developed the uh, paired associates method for memory research, which is used up to the present day. But Harvard wouldn't grant PhDs to women, so in 1895, I understand she held a mock PhD defense in which James and Royce all participated as a as a ploy to to force Harvard's hand. How did that come about, and how did Harvard Harvard respond? Well, um, Calkins, after she set up the lab, she 
uh, at Wellesley and was teaching um, the laboratory course there. And there were 54 students enrolled in the laboratory course, which is a huge number. Um, she very much wanted to continue her study, and so she started looking around to try to figure out where she could get further study in psychology, and she contemplated going to Europe, to Germany, to study with uh, Hugo Munsterberg, who um, was then at the University of Freiburg, and um, there had been pictures that had showed that he had a woman in his lab, because the German universities were not any more welcoming, really, than American ones to women. But it seemed that Munsterberg was perhaps more welcoming than some. And James kept counseling her to wait, and uh, sure enough, it's because he had, uh, I think, secret knowledge that Munsterberg was then coming to Harvard. So Munsterberg arrived at Harvard, and Mary Coffins went to study with him in his laboratory. He, she did work with him for about three years and developed, as you said, the paired associates method where she paired colors and numbers and um, looked at uh, whether vividness of the color influenced memory or whether it was frequency of presentation of colors and numbers or whether it was the most recent presentation of a color and a number that was more important, was most important. And um, Monsterberg was very impressed with her and in 1894, wrote to the president uh, and the fellows of Harvard College asking whether Hawkins could be admitted as a candidate for the PhD. And he says in this letter that um, she's the strongest student of all the students who have worked in his laboratory and that um, he thinks she's one of the strongest professors of psychology in the country and that he thinks that, that it would be an honor for the philosophy department at Harvard to have their degree associated with Mary Calkins. So a, a very strong letter, which the Harvard um, president basically said nope mm -hmm. to this request. And then, I guess, Monsterberg was just still not happy about this, and, and uh, Royce and James, of course, also had a very high opinion of Calkins. And so, as you said, in 1895, James Royce Munsterberg, um, a professor Palmer, and um, Santayana held an unauthorized PhD examination for Mary Calkins and wrote to the Harvard Corporation saying that um, she had satisfied all the requirements and that had, in fact, had, had quite a brilliant performance in her examinations, and they recommended that she be granted the PhD. And basically, the communication was simply acknowledged with no further response. Mm -hmm. So uh, she didn't have the Harvard PhD. And then some years later, um, after Radcliffe College was established, it was proposed that Radcliffe start offering a PhD. But Radcliffe had no graduate classes. It really was only an undergraduate college. Harvard professors taught women students at Radcliffe College. But women graduate students were actually doing their work at Harvard. So they offered um, these four women, Mary Calkins among them, um, a Radcliffe PhD. And uh, this is when Calkins' feelings about equality of the sexes, I think, really comes to the fore. And um, she wrote back to the dean uh, of Radcliffe and said, you know, that she would really like to accept the Radcliffe PhD. She admired the other women um, and their scholarship that were being offered the degree, 
Uh, and she also admitted that she thought probably the Radcliffe degree would be considered the equivalent of the Harvard degree, and that she sometimes found it awkward that she didn't have a PhD. But she said she believed that now that the Radcliffe PhD was being offered, that she doubted then that the Harvard PhD would ever be open to women. And she said that in her opinion, quote, the best ideals of education would be better served if Radcliffe College refused to confer the doctor's degree. So she did not accept it. Mm-hmm. Then in 1927, um, a Harvard graduate uh, actually organized uh, a petition to the Harvard board um, to request that Calkins be granted the Harvard degree, and it was um, it was signed by 13 Harvard graduates, among them Robert Woodworth and Thorndike and other um, major names in psychology, uh, requesting that the Harvard award her the degree. So this was kind of an extraordinary step for a number of Harvard graduates to take. It, it was not effective, but it must have been very gratifying to Calkins um, to have that kind of gesture made on her behalf by her colleagues and those fellow psychologists, eminent scholars in the field. Mm-hmm. So after being refused the PhD by Harvard, she she returned to Wellesley, but in 1898 turned the directorship of her laboratory over to a colleague, and her own work became increasingly focused on the subjective side of psychology, particularly on the theory of the self. Uh, could you tell us a little about the character of that work? She did return to to Wellesley, and then um, once Eleanor Gamble came to Wellesley and, and was able to take over the experimental work, Calkins' deep love of philosophy really came to the fore. And um, she actually she was the first president, woman president of the American Psychological Association in 1905, but she was also the first woman president of, of the American Philosophical Association in 1918. And that came about primarily because of her work in the self-psychology. She was so attached to it that in her autobiography that was published in 1930, she devotes almost all of it to a presentation of her self-psychology rather than talking about her life and her intellectual development. She spends very little time on that. Mm -hmm. She essentially thought that structuralism and functionalism, which were the two um, big schools at the time, both were missing the boat because they didn't take into account the importance of the self. The, the, as far as Hawkins was concerned, psychology or the self was really the central part of um, everything about the person. And so you couldn't um, she talked about the introspectionist being too objective. The reductionism was taken too far, and and that if both structuralist and functionalists would focus on the importance of the self, structuralists could analyze sort of the elements of consciousness in reference to the self, and the functionalists could talk about the self and its interaction with the environment. It was interesting because. Calkins never defined self. She, in fact, said it couldn't really be defined because it was its own unique self, um, but it could be described. And so she talked about the self as, as being the kind of thing when we say things like, I'm ashamed of myself or I approve of myself, that 
that's what we mean by self. That's kind of the way that she described it. So you can kind of see some Jamesian influences coming through. She talked about the fact that the self is continuous in that the self that is you at age 10 is also the self that is you as an adult, but it is also changeable because the self that is you at age 10 is not exactly the same as the self that is you as an adult. Mm -hmm. So it's both a changing being and a unique being. And um, she continued, she actually came up with this self-psychology as early as 1900, and she continued to sort of tinker with it and talk about it in relation to other things. But uh, its character remained pretty much the same over an almost 30-year period of time. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now, over the course of her life, Calkins was also involved in a host of social causes as well. Could you tell us a little bit about those? Well, I know just a little bit about that. As I mentioned earlier, she definitely believed in the equality of the sexes. And so she was a suffragist. Um, She did um, work to get the vote for women. Um, She was also involved with the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, And she was a pacifist. Uh, she was a very religious person, as you might expect, growing, growing up in a family with a father who's a minister. And um, there's a story that, that in World War One, a faculty member from Wellesley was fired for uh, pacifist views, and that Calkins offered her resignation um, to Wellesley at that time, saying, I hold these same views. Um, but it, it, in Calkins' case, the resignation was not accepted. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for this. We've been speaking with Professor Catherine Millar of Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, about the life and career of Mary Whitten Hawkins. Professor Millar is the author of, among other things, The First Generation of Women Psychologists and the Psychology of Women, published in American Psychologist in the year 2000. If you'd like to know more about the life of Mary Whitten Hawkins, you can look at the chapter by Laurel Furumoto in the first volume of the Portraits of Pioneers in Psychology series, edited by Gregory A. Kimball, Michael Wertheimer, and Charlotte L. White. And that was published by Lawrence Earlbaum and American Psychological Association in 1991. Laurel Furumoto has a number of other uh, publications about Mary Whitten Hawkins as well. One is in the book that she edited with Elizabeth Scarborough called Untold Lives, which is about the history of women in psychology. Um, She also has articles in the Journal of the History of Behavioral Sciences and in Psychology of Women Quarterly about the life of Mary Whitten Hawkins. During the interview, Professor Millar mentioned a photograph of Munsterberg's lab uh, that contained a woman. You can find that photograph in the biography of Hugo Munsterberg that was written by Margaret Munsterberg soon after Hugo's death. It was published in 1922. It shows a number of the people who were in his Freiburg lab um, around 1890, just before he went to Harvard. And among them is one woman named Reza von Schoenhofer. Uh, Von Schoenhofer was um, a woman who was good friends with Friedrich Nietzsche. And after Nietzsche's death, she battled with Nietzsche's sister Elizabeth over Nietzsche's uh, legacy. Elizabeth was the one who sort of rewrote Nietzsche's work as strident German ultranationalism, which would later be appropriated by the Nazis, and Schoenhofer was opposed to that particular view of Nietzsche's work. 
there is a book about the circle of women who were collected around Nietzsche called Nietzsche's Women Beyond the Whip, and that was written by Carol Dieta, D-I-E-T-H-E, published by Walter de Groyter in 1996. You might also be interested to know that there is an award named after Mary Whitten Calkins that is sponsored by the Society for the History of Psychology, that's Division 26 of the American Psychological Association, and it's an invited lecture about uh, underrepresented groups in psychology, such as women, the Mary Whitten Calkins lecture, every year at the APA convention. Finally, if you are uh, concerned about the fact that Mary Whitten Coggins never got her PhD, there was a petition being organized by four students at Kalamazoo College, led by their teacher, Karen J. Boatwright, to demand that Harvard give Mary Whitten Coggins her PhD posthumously. There used to be a website about this, but I can't find it anymore. Perhaps we can write to Karen Boatwright and see if she'll start the effort one more time. She again is at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for March 27th, in 1857, Carl Pearson was born. Pearson was one of the founders of modern statistics. He developed the widely used product moment correlation coefficient, better known as R, and the chi-square statistic. Also on March 27th in 1909, David Kretsch, whose original name was Isidore Krzyzewski, was born. Kretsch was a leader in the New Look movement in perception, which emphasized the social and cognitive factors in perception. For March 28th in 1927, Charles D. Spielberger was born. Spielberger's state trait anxiety inventory has been widely used in treatment and research, and he was American Psychological Association president in 1991. For March 29th, in 1885, Walter R. Miles was born. Miles studied human performance and adaptation to adverse conditions. He was American Psychological Association president in 1932. For March 30th, in 1876, Clifford Beers was born. Beers is most famous for his book, A Mind That Found Itself, which described the inhumane treatment he had received himself in the asylums of his day. He was a founder of the mental hygiene movement. Also on March 30th, in 1882, Melanie Klein was born. Klein was an important child psychoanalyst who developed the technique of play therapy. And for March 31st, in 1929, Martha T. Mednick was born. Mednick's interests have been in personality and social research, achievement motivation, and women's issues, especially African-American women's issues. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 